and there would be cases out in the hallway for like road cases for their gear because that band had already been touring before i was in it and like um this fender twin amplifier came out in a case and they took took it out of the case and that was jerry garcia's fender twin and it was still in a grateful dead road case and i was just like oh fuck you know that was joe Bigale, his voice and the music you hear in the background i'm jeff and this is storied san francisco Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from musicians, bartenders, artists, and San Franciscans from all walks of life, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Quickly, we just wanted to remind you that we're asking for your help to keep this podcast free and thus available for the most ears possible. Go to the store page on our website, storiedsf.com, to learn about ways you can contribute. We appreciate everything you're able to do. Welcome to episode 31, part two. In part one, Joe walked us through his life growing up in New York State, with music a central part of his teen years. In this podcast, Joe shares all the different musical iterations he's undergone since moving to San Francisco in 2003. Many bands and solo projects have culminated in the last few years with his project, Otis McDonald. By the way, the music we've used in the intros and outros for this podcast since the beginning are all Otis tracks. Here's Joe. Yeah, so then the drums showed up and set, set them up, and uh, my brother Adrian and I started jamming all the time. He would come over, because he didn't have space to jam in his little apartment over on Sutter. And uh, yeah, and I started beating the streets, uh, so to speak, really actually Craigslist, and trying to meet musicians to play with, and that proved to be quite a bit harder than I had hoped. Uh, however, I did find musicians that I still work with to this day on Craigslist. Awesome. Um, one, one, one particular musician was this guy, Matt Berkeley that I actually, it was a friend of mine forwarded me a friend of mine that I had met through another person I'd met on Craigslist had forwarded me this Craigslist ad of this band reorchestra looking for a drummer. And, uh, that was actually a year and a half after I had been living out here and I responded to that ad and went and auditioned and got the gig and then that's kind of how I started playing in the scene what other kind of jobs quickly before we really like get into music Mm -hmm. at the um uh to the exclusion of everything else like what other kind of jobs yeah anything fun all I did was wait on tables, yeah. But uh, where besides, you said... Um, Park Hyatt. The Park Hyatt, That yeah. was it. Oh, the whole I time. There, I worked there for two and a half years. Okay. Uh, almost three years. I mean, the money was really good, mm-hmm. and I was I had no responsibilities. You know, I would work there for breakfast and lunch, and, you know, walk with like two to three hundred bucks in tips every day. Wow. And... Then I would work dinners, and 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 all the other waiters thought dinners were a really bad time to work because you're in the financial district, and it was a lot slower at night. But the menu was a lot more expensive at night, and we had a quite the wine selection. So if you knew how to sell, you you know you could make some money. And and I rather work at nights because it was a shorter shift. I could make just as much money, and then I'd be done at like ten o'clock, and uh, you know I would use my 
brother's expired driver's license and, and go out <laughs> and get into clubs. I looked old enough, I just didn't have an ID. And I, somebody had uh, taken my money to give me a fake ID and never saw that person again. So um, I think the first place I ever went into was the Boom Boom Room. And uh, and that was like a game changer for me. With a fake ID or yeah. was it? Okay, okay. Sorry, Boom Boom Room. <laughs> no, I think they're good with that now. Kids don't do not do what yeah. Joe did. Yeah. I play there all the time now, too. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, you, pay, you paid the karma back. Yeah, there exactly. So oh, I would still go in there. I was I was respectful. I wouldn't do anything crazy. Sure. I just wanted to see music and meet musicians. And what a place to land. Man, especially then in 2003. Yeah. Like, or, yeah, the Boom Boom Room was, was super happening back then. And so many great bands would would play there like after they played at the Fillmore they and, and they still do that um I don't know if it happens as frequently as it used to um but then there was this this great group of musicians that would come down from Seattle um that was a part of this band called Mocktube but they would play in this all improvised group every show they would do was improvised and it was called Das Root and the leader in that group was Reggie Watts and who's now, you know, on late night TV. He's a great comedian, but he's always been a fantastic musician and singer and improviser. And uh, he just would like light up the stage. I was just so blown away by that dude. And I remember chatting with him on set breaks and stuff, and he was just very cool. I was, I just didn't know anybody. I didn't know who he was, and but I always knew he'd be a star. And, uh, and then one night after. Um, waiting on tables I went on a date with this this young lady who took me to the mission uh, and took me to Bruno's and uh, I got into Bruno's no problem and there was this group called the Transmission Trio playing and there was this young fiery MC known as Dublin who <laughs> happened well I, I found this out while I was there happened to be this woman's ex-boyfriend and she brought me there basically to make me jealous <laughs> or make him, him jealous. jealous yeah <laughs> but really ended up making me jealous sorry right, right. <laughs> and uh um but but not really because like I mean, she knew I was a musician and she just wanted to take me to see some music so I thought or whatever you know but then those two ended up hanging out and I just like watched the show and I was like really blown away by Dublin and gave him my demo tape or my demo CD which was this music I was writing and recording in my garage in West Portal and uh, and then I'd say like maybe six months later I started going back to Bruno's and I would sneak in through the back door um because the musicians would all just be like hanging out in the back um smoking or whatever and that's when i met uh adam feast and i'm in the in the jazz mafia scene it was introduced to me and they would do these things every tuesday night they were already playing jazz mafia oh yeah jazz okay. mafia tuesdays was already okay a thing and it was this was the bruno's it was like the old bruno's so it was like the semi-circle stage in the middle of the room and uh, and so I just started going all the time. I would take my brother over there, and we'd watch the realistic orchestra. I mean, we'd watch like a fucking big band pack into this room. There was like more people on stage than there were in the audience, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yep. Playing this highly sophisticated music, fusing like hip-hop and jazz music. I was just like in heaven. I was like, this is incredible. And uh, 
And then how I started playing at Bruno's was through this band Reorchestra that I had auditioned for on Craigslist. And, and that's kind of how I was able to meet Adam besides just meeting him backstage. You know, I don't know that he really even remembered who I was. Um, but I, I think he started seeing me play at Bruno's with this group. And then I, I realized I needed some education in like music business and I needed to understand the recording program I was using more because I grew up with tape and I was just treating it like a tape machine that I knew that there was more possibilities and so I enrolled in this um, this program at SF State that has the, I think it's called the CEL program mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it was mostly taking place at their at the time their downtown campus uh, which was unfortunate because I lived right across the street from <laughs> yeah. the main campus, yeah. but but it was fine. And so I took a class called um, How to Start an Independent Record Label, and and then I took a Pro Tools 101 course and learned a lot about Pro Tools. And then this independent record label class was really informative, although that stuff is probably, it just doesn't even matter now. Um, however, the teacher was majorly influential on me. I just thought this guy was the coolest motherfucker. Like he reminded me of Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. Like okay. his laugh, like his look, like but he was just like hip and like a jazz musician and a percussionist and and he happened to have played with so many people. Like uh he jammed with Tito Puente, he'd played with Prince, Sheila E. Like he was this Bay Area dude that I come to find out later was um, part of the family that started Fantasy Records in Berkeley. And uh, his name is John Bendick. And John was so cool, and he really took a liking to me. And I brought him, I brought in my, you know, my demo CD, the same thing I had given to Dublin. I was just giving it to everybody. Gave it to Scott Amendola, too, while I was taking a drum lesson from him. And, uh, and John really dug it. And he was like, man, you're really cool. And he was like, you should, uh, you should meet some people I know that are working at the studio and one night after class because they were evening classes he and I walked down the street to Mission and 10th Street and uh, and at the, in between 9th and 10th on Mission Street was this place Coast Recorders I walked in there and you know wasn't a very impressive lobby or anything but then you walk in the back and it's this big beautiful recording room in this uh, this kind of small control room, it's probably about the size of this. Although with this giant mixing console in there, it felt really, really small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was this engineer there, this guy Sebastian Richard, and uh, and he was cool. And he was working on uh, I don't know what the record was he was working on, but he was working on something. And he was very polite and let me just look around. And John was hoping to introduce me to this guy named Ben Jonas, who was the one of the owners of that that studio at the time and uh, but he wasn't there and so John set up a meeting for us and I got a call one day when I was getting out of work at like two in the afternoon and he was like hey man um, before you come to class tonight I want you to go over to coast and I want you to meet this guy Ben and so I go over and I meet Ben, and uh, I think Ben thinks he's meeting uh, a potential intern, and I don't know who I'm meeting. I'm just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just walking in to meet some guy, and I got my demo CD. And so I meet Ben, and uh, I play him some of my songs, and his eyes light up, and he's like, yeah, you did this on your 
your your inbox on your laptop and i'm like yeah and you know the sounds weren't that great or whatever i thought it was i was making my record you know and <laughs> and i quickly realized after hearing the stuff he had made that i was making my demo yeah <laughs> and i play i sat down at his piano and i played him another song and he was just like he was really blown away and he called me the next day he was like hey man you know i'd really like to work with you i think you know i i could help you produce your record and and so I go and meet up with him, and and then uh, and where I go to meet up with him is at Bruno's. He takes me to Bruno's to see Jazz Mafia, and I'm like, yeah, I know these guys. Like I've come over here to see them, and he's like, oh, these are my boys. And I was really, and then he takes me to this party afterwards at Adam Thies's house, and then I'm meeting all these musicians, and so I'm just like lit up, man. I'm like, okay, this is where I needed to be, and and then it turns out that Ben. And his roommate, Gowan, uh, Gowan Matthews, this incredible guitar player, are looking for a new housemate at their house up in the Oakland Hills. Uh, and at that time, my roommates and I were all thinking about leaving the house. And um, and we were just, you know, looking for different places. And, and so I was like, yeah, I jumped on it. And, and, uh, and, and the big attraction is that Ben had another studio inside the house. <laughs> And he had a big Pro Tools HD rig and, you know, all this fancy equipment that I never had. And he's like, why don't you move in? And and uh, and the rent, I think the rent was like 500 bucks a month or 600 <laughs> bucks a month. That's how much I was paying in West Portal, by the way. It was 500 a month back in 2003 mm-hmm. until 2006. And, uh, and then I, I moved out to, uh, or maybe it was 2005 I moved to Oakland. Yeah, I moved to the Oakland Hills in 2005. Uh, and lived with Ben and Gowan, and Gowan and I were both kind of getting our, you know, our chops together as producers at the same time, like really learning Pro Tools, and mm-hmm. and uh, and Ben gave us a studio to figure that out in, and then um, after living there for a few months, Ben uh, asked if I wanted a job working at the studio which I definitely did and I didn't want to wait on tables anymore and I was sick of having to work out every holiday and not go home for Christmas you know and 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 so he was like well I can't promise you a lot but I can promise that I'll pay your rent and if you can supplement the rest of your income from playing gigs or whatever then you should do it and uh, I kept my job as a non-call server and I was able to make 500 bucks a month working at this recording studio and uh and i was just you know doing anything from getting coffee for people and um and you know having the opportunity to learn how to operate pro tools and for sessions and uh and then eventually i started doing more like managerial roles and working upstairs in the office and i think i was quote unquote a manager there i don't know how (laughs) much of a manager i was Uh, but I think that was my official title. I think I even had a business card too, which was funny. But I was working for Jonas Media. That's that was his company. Mm-hmm. And um, lo and behold, one day a session comes in, and it's the Shotgun Wedding Quintet, and it's Adam Thies in Dublin. And I'm like, holy shit, these are those guys. And and, uh, and I'm talking to Dub or I'm no, I'm talking to Adam out in the um, in like the lobby in the coffee area, and at that point i was kind of just starting to put together my my band uh which was with my brother adrian on guitar and then some of the guys from reorchestra that i had been playing with and um our bass player couldn't play this one show with us and and ben had booked my band 
with another artist he was working with named Spencer Day and booked us at uh, Cafe du Nord, the old Cafe du Nord. So this was, this was probably 2006 at that point. And uh, What was your I, band's name at the time? It was just the Joe Bigale Band. Got it. And we were just playing all the music I had been writing for my first album. Uh, and then some other covers and stuff. And I was leading the band from behind the drum set, singing and playing drums. And uh, I asked Adam if he'd be available to sub. And uh, he was like, sure. And, you know, he's a working musician. And I was all scared to ask him, you know. And, and uh, To sub on bass, right? Yeah, to sub on bass. Right. And he uh, came over for rehearsal. And I think he, you know, we did the gig. And I think he he dug it. He dug my vibe or whatever. And, and then I would... Um, I'd engineer a little bit on that Shotgun Wedding record that they were working on. And, and then eventually I got invited to sit in on one of their, uh, one of the Jazz Mafia's Stevie Wonder tributes, maybe like the first one they did yeah. at, at Bruno's with the big band. And that was 2006 or 2007. And then that that's when I started working with Jazz Mafia. Like after that, I like did this gig and then I went out on tour with this Czech artist um, that Ben was working with, mm-hmm. Lanka Dusilova, and I started playing drums with her. And and then when I came back, it was like he was just like, "Come to the next one, come to the next one." And what uh, what were you playing with, Jazz Mafia? I was drums? just singing, just singing, just singing. Okay. And then Adam um, would put together smaller groups. Like I think the first time I started playing drums with Adam was I I subbed for their drummer Pat Cordy. Uh, at this club Royale that uh, used to be in, in North Beach on Grant Street in between Green and Vallejo. Mm. And uh, they were doing, for a long time, Jazz Mafia and this group called The Park were alternating Wednesdays doing a live open mic hip-hop night. And I started playing drums. Oh, I subbed one night. And then, uh, and then quickly after that, Adam... And I and uh, this keyboardist Matt Berkeley from Reorchestra, we started a group called Super Taster, and then we brought in this guitar player John Monahan, who was always playing during the Realistic Orchestra gigs, and uh, or I think we did some sometimes we did a trio gig with John and Adam and me, and sometimes we did a, a trio gig with Matt and Adam and me, and then one time we played as a quartet, and we we're like, hey, this is really cool. Let's keep doing this. And then at that point, I had already had my my band and and already had my CD release show, uh, which was at the Great American Music Hall. Wow, not not bad. Still called the Joe Bigale? Still called the Joe Bigale band. band. And at that point, my band had grown, and I was even more up front playing guitar. I had this drummer, Dave Tweedy, who could play guitar and drums. and These are all people I met through Ben Jonas. He was really a major connection for me in the Bay Area. And uh, and Adam was playing full-time with me at that, at that point. I was playing with his groups, and he was playing in my groups, and it was all copacetic. And uh, we played at the Great American Music Hall and did our big CD release show, and then I brought in some background singers on that, one of which was this young lady, Karen Page, and Karen and I had met because I was working with some of the musicians that were in Reorchestra in uh, in a cover band that they played in called Groovus, which was like a, a party band. <laughs> Horrible name. <laughs> yes. Uh, but they were just playing like predominantly like funk and rhythm and blues and soul songs, which I was all about. And I wanted to sing. And, you know, I, I realized like 
I didn't mention this, but you know, I went to college and and I was really into jazz music. I was really into predominantly just instrumental music. Even though I knew how to sing, I never really took it seriously until I came out here, and, and until I heard that D'Angelo record and moved out here and started writing my own songs. That's when I started getting serious. Like, I want to be a singer, and I started, you know, probably doing all the wrong things, trying to make my voice sound raspy like Ray Charles and. What kind Dr. of wrong John things? Say what? What kind of wrong things? Oh, like smoking cigarettes all the time. Cigarettes and coffee. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Cigarettes, coffee, whiskey. Yeah, 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 yeah. And screaming. <laughs> you yeah. know, like I didn't know how to sing properly. I just knew how to sing in tune. And yet here you are. And here I You're am. You're doing fine. Well, I, you know, I I think part of the reason um, Adam started hiring me a lot is he they enjoyed the raspiness of my voice and, and, uh, and I wasn't a super flashy singer. I just had a quality to my voice that, and I could sing these classic R and B songs and kind of um, do it in a, in a way that was paying homage to like how it was done before. And and I everybody always compared me to Joe Cocker. That was always yeah. the thing, you know. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, and I uh, so anyway, um, yeah. So going back to my CD release show. Uh, that band Groovus that I was playing with, the other singer in that band was Karen Page, and she was fantastic, and I was like blown away by her. And she was the lead singer, or we were both lead singers. Like we would trade off. You know, she would do the female vocal songs, and I would do the male mm-hmm. vocal songs, mm-hmm. and that was pretty much it. And mm-hmm. and so I brought her in to sing background vocals with this woman, Jessica Neighbor, who happened to be her vocal teacher at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Adam started inviting uh, Karen to jazz mafia gigs, and. And that was awesome. And then eventually she became a part of the band with me, Adam, Matt, and John Monahan, and we were called Super Taster. And Super Taster eventually took over the uh, Wednesday night residency over at Royale. And uh, because I think at the time it was called like the Jazz Mafia Trio, it was just like some of the guys from Shotgun Wedding. And uh, and two of those guys, Pat and Joe, I think were burnt out on doing it. They had been doing it for a year or something. And, so we took it over, and man, we did it for like three years. I think that that thing went on for like four years, and that was amazing. And and what was really cool is the other band that would alternate with us, um, the Park. They they had uh, this keyboardist in that band named Ben Schwer, and Ben, uh, going all the way back to the Craigslist stuff, he was the first musician I met on Craigslist that was super awesome, and he went to SF State. And he like just walked across the street one day and came to my house and we jammed and we would jam with my brother and it was just like yeah it was really funny and we even started a band we were like just starting a band and we were rehearsing at this spot that he was renting uh, and you were talking about like roommates and in, in like studio spaces or whatever well the other people that were renting that spot were the people in the park mm-hmm. and so when I was in that band or starting that band with him I had gotten the gig with reorchestra and that band was working a lot and we were traveling and stuff and so i i basically stopped doing that band and went and played with reorchestra full-time because i thought this was my big break you know and ben started playing with the park and and we mm. were brought back together by the by the royale gig which was really hilarious and uh yeah and then i just yeah started working with jazz mafia a bunch and and uh you know around 2000 eight is when adam started writing the brass bows and beats uh hip-hop symphony and he brought me in to help write um vocal stuff that accompanied it and karen also 
and uh, yeah, and then we premiered that in 2009, and that was like a big deal, and and that is what led us to traveling all around the country and playing the Montreal Jazz Fest and nice um, playing the Monterey Jazz Fest, the Newport Jazz Fest, played Central Park at the um, Summer Stage, and it was just like yeah, just incredible, and uh, all the while I was still just writing songs and working on my second Joe Bagale album and. And I did that, and and about the time that that was finished, um, that album anyway, and the Jazz Mafia big orchestra stuff was kind of fizzling down um, or fizzling out. Uh, then at that point, I got uh, the call to audition for the Mickey Hart Band, and uh, and two of my friends were in the Mickey Hart Band, mm-hmm. which were one was my old roommate Gowan. And then this woman, Crystal, Crystal Hall, Crystal Monet Hall, who I absolutely loved and adored. And we had worked together a bunch through uh, Ben Jonas because he had um, managed her and produced her album. And and she started working with Jazz Mafia, too, at that time. Um, Actually, around the time that Karen started fizzling out of the Jazz Mafia scene, Crystal came in and started doing a lot of the female vocal stuff. and, um, And so that's how her and I got tight. And in the Mickey Hart band, she was uh, sharing the lead singing position with uh, this male vocalist and multi-instrumentalist named uh, Tim Hockenberry. And Tim and Mickey did not get along. And uh, and Tim eventually quit. And then I got a call asking if I wanted the audition. I think Gowan and Crystal and, and Ben had put my name in and, uh, and I played, you know, multiple instruments and and I was also familiar with the Grateful Dead music, which Tim wasn't. Um, I knew their music from when I was a kid. You know, I was like, "Yeah, shit, I'll audition for the Grateful Dead." <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> you know, I want to do that. And uh, and 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 one of the other members in that band was Dave Schools from Widespread Panic. When I was a kid, I was really into jam bands. If you recall, I was talking about that, and um, and Widespread Panic was a band I would go see, and uh, Fish was a band I'd go see. I never saw the Dead, but I was hyper aware of Mickey Hart because I was a drummer and he had the Planet Drum record that had like all the greatest percussionists in the world on that one record and so I was and I you know I didn't have anything like that where I was making that kind of money and touring on like a big tour bus and playing sold out shows and being were up you, front were you at all starstruck to meet Mickey or was it more just like maybe like a tiny bit yeah. like um, but you know it, when I walked into his his studio up at his house, I uh, the first thing I saw were his these these huge drums. Um, I forget what they're called, but they're like these these three big drums, and they had tie dye drum heads on it. And I remember seeing those drums in Grateful Dead concert footage. Right. And I was like, holy shit, like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and there would be cases out in the hallway for, like, road cases for their gear. Because that band had already been touring before I was in it. And, like, um, this Fender Twin amplifier came out in a case, and they took took it out of the case, and that was Jerry Garcia's Fender Twin. And it was still in a Grateful Dead road case. And I was just like, oh, fuck, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then Dave Schools walked out and I was like, oh, shit. I think I might have been more starstruck by Dave. Right. Um, because I started hanging and jamming a little bit with Gowan and Dave and the drummer Inks Herman. Um, 
for for a little bit before Mickey walked in. Then I turned around and then like Mickey was there and I was like, oh shit, hi, you know, nice to meet you. And and the audition really just kind of consisted of of us jamming, and they were just trying to get really weird and see if I could keep up. And and ultimately I kept up. And uh, and then I remember at the end of that jam, Mickey wasn't behind his rig anymore. And then I like turned around and he was right behind me eating a sandwich. And uh, and he was like, "So you, you want to join the band?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, totally." Do it. And then we had we broke for lunch and uh, and and yeah, I called my wife or she was my girlfriend at the time. She, yeah, she wasn't even my fiance, but I already had plans of proposing to her and told her I got the gig. And uh, did joining that band mean you had to give up any of the other stuff you were doing? Because you. Sounds like you're doing a lot, Jazz Mafia. Yeah. Um, um, well, the Royale gig. So, like I said, like the the Royale gig at that point was done. Oh, okay. Um, Super Taster was no longer a band. Okay. This is fast forwarding. This is like 2012 at this point. The big orchestras, uh, like the Brass Bows and Beats, like the Jazz Mafia Symphony, that stuff was done. Um, I don't think Adam had any interest in having to manage that many musicians. Um, totally understandable <laughs> and uh, and he was starting to pursue different stuff using uh, a string quartet and a percussionist and I wasn't really involved in that stuff um, and I was starting to I was starting a band with uh, Matt Berkeley who I was always working very closely with on either his record or on my second Joe Bigel record because we were co-renting um this recording studio in the east bay called bird and egg recording studios which is owned by nino moschella who's uh, also a majorly influential um songwriter producer guy on me and um we started a band called hot einstein i mean it was really kind of matt's band and uh, he brought in this guy pete canton on bass and this guy darren fox on guitar and it really just started from these jam sessions and in Matt's living room Friday mornings and Matt would make us lunch and Karen was there and Crystal would come over too because Crystal lived in the neighborhood and so that was like the original band was was Matt and Darren Pete me on drums and Karen and Crystal and Matt was just starting to get into like singing and uh and we you know we were all backing him up and then but we would all share lead vocal duty and uh, we were playing regularly at this old place in Oakland called Disco Volante. And uh, and then we booked some gigs in the city. And so that was just kind of getting going. And when I got the opportunity to do the Mickey Hart thing. Um, and so I, you know, I took the gig because I wanted to do it. Didn't mean I was going to be gone forever. I just would go out for like two week stints and come back and. I think the longest tour I ever did with Mickey was like a two-month tour, but it it was like it was like 25 days and then 10 days off and then another 25 days. And, but that was a long one. But that's a lot. That was at the very end too. That was yeah. the last tour. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, 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 I wasn't in Hot Einstein anymore. It wasn't my choice. I was right. kicked out. You know. Yeah. Um, and that sucks because that kind of like put a damper on my relationship with Matt mm. and uh you know that is what it is it's, yes it uh, is. he didn't like me being in that band right. or something I, I don't know and because I didn't have enough time for Hot Einstein which is 
I don't know. I probably would have had plenty of time for it, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. But you know, Adam and Jazz Mafia was super supportive. He was like, "Yeah, man, you know, there'll be gigs when you're back home." And and there was. Every time I was back home, I was playing with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was easy. There was never ever a problem with musicians going out with bigger acts. It's like we were all in the same hustle together and we're supportive. Working. Yeah, supportive and yeah. and understood that the nature of of the band was fluid. Yeah. And we're just working class musicians. Right. And it's still that way with all the musicians I work with. Cool. Um, and so I was out with Mickey for like a couple of years. And uh, the end of 2013 was when that was, uh, when that band was done. And at the end of 2013, I had all this money saved up and I married my wife and we had a big party down in Mexico. And then I was broke. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I was happy. Yeah, and I knew that I would just make ends meet, how I always did, and get gigs and everything. And people who, if you've listened to this podcast before, without maybe knowing it, you've heard Otis McDonald. And mm-hmm. let's hear the story. So, uh, so I get married, and I'm out of work. Mickey Hart's not calling anymore, <laughs> and uh, and I get an email from. A person that works at YouTube and YouTube is starting what's called the uh, YouTube audio library which is a royalty-free uh, audio library of tracks for people to use in their videos without having to worry about paying a copyright f- infringement fee or whatever and uh, I uh, quickly respond because I'm like yeah I've, you know I'd love to get paid to make original music and you know, what are the requirements? And they're like, well, first you have to submit, you know, a reel of music. And uh, and then our team will review your music and we'll get back to you. And uh, so I did that. And that was by the end of that year, like before Christmas is when I got all that stuff in. And then come January, I get a call and they're like, yeah, we'd like to commission you to do 10 tracks. And uh, I'm like, okay, great. You know, and they tell me what it's a, you know, set fee per track and... I was like, awesome, that, that'll that help out. <laughs> and so um, they give me a deadline. And I think the deadline was um, the 1st of February. And so I, I bust out 10 tracks. I've never had to write and record and complete 10 tracks. And 10 original from scr- like from originals. Scratch, yeah. Okay. But instrumental. They didn't want music with vocals. Um, and so I, I did it, you know, and I... And I impressed myself that I was capable of finishing something uh, because I, just like any other artist, like we, you know, I struggle with, with finishing stuff. I come up with stuff and, but I'm, you know, any, any, the problems, most problems that any artist have is themselves. Like we get in the way. And calling it done. And calling it done. Any art. Yeah. But if you have a deadline, that certainly induces creativity and productivity and finishing something. And so uh, I finish these tracks and um, and I submit those tracks and I and I put it under the name Joe Bagale. But uh, one of the tracks on there was the song I had had been kind of writing for the last few months, and the the vibe of it was super reminiscent of Michael McDonald. And in my mind, I was writing a song for Michael McDonald because of the hook that I had in it. But because I made it instrumental and I did it with a talk box, um, 
I never thought, well, I was like, oh, it's not going to be a Michael McDonald song. It's just going to be whatever. But then I, um, I, in producing the track, I started adding uh, some different elements to it. One particular element was the glockenspiel. And the pattern I was doing really reminded me of the song Strawberry Letter 23 by Shuggy Otis. And because there was those two different figures involved in influencing this song, I just called the song Otis McDonald. It was just like a very quick idea. And it was catchy. And when that music finally became available, which I think was like March, um, somebody used that song in this video. And it was this young lady that had a spider inside her mouth. And she looks at the camera and she smiles and a giant spider crawls out of her mouth and it they play just a little snippet of that song but all of a sudden one day like my youtube channel for joe Bagale was just fucking blowing up in it because i had that song on there and uh and, and it was just subscription after subscription and i'm like did you have the shit. other nine tracks on there as well like all the uh no i only had a couple of the other ones okay because like, i was trying to make like music videos for them and i looked at it like this these 10 tracks that i did for youtube was the third joe Bagale album it was an instrumental album and and that was my approach to to making all these songs it's like i'm gonna promote it as an album and so that otis mcdonald track to me was always the catchiest one and so that was the first one i made like a little video for and it's not much of a video it's just like it was me experimenting with like what's called parallax imaging and i was using uh after effects to do it and i just like took a picture of myself and cut it out and like and i had this like kind of weird zoom thing going on but that was the way people could hear the whole track after they heard that video because this girl had linked it back to that video on my channel and that was when i saw the power of youtube i was like holy shit like i knew the power of youtube because of like Justin Bieber and stuff was like starting to happen but I that's when I really saw the power of the YouTube audio library and um, thank God they came back to me at the end of April and they're like hey we'd like to commission you to do 30 tracks and uh, and we also need some music um, like more like in the hip-hop genre because we're lacking hip-hop tracks and they were like can you do that and I was like sure because the first 10 they gave me free reign and they essentially gave me free reign here too they just asked if i could contribute and put hip-hop next to it and i was like sure and me being a hip-hop head i was i was really into uh jay dilla and mad lib and q-tip those were in dr dre those were like my big big uh producer um idols and and i knew that those guys made a lot of beats by predominantly sampling classic soul funk records jazz records and i couldn't do that if i was going to contribute to this royalty free library however the music that i was always writing as joe Bagale was kind of more rooted in classic soul funk and jazz so i was like well what if i just like made my own samples and so i one day experimented with just like coming up with like 30 seconds of music which i was always really good at doing because like i said i could come up with stuff i could never finish something <laughs> and so i came up with a, a like a little sample and i just like brought it into this program called recycle that would allow me to turn it into samples to bring into this program called reason and that i could actually have it on a midi controller as a sampler and i would just like speed it up or slow it down and play around with 
this little 30 seconds of music and find a new sequence until I just found something that got good to me and I started hearing new music and then I started programming beats around it and that was the first hip-hop beat I'd ever made was with my sample and I was like hey this is kind of cool you know and then I started getting more into the sample and I started making it sound like it was like an old record and I'd like put vinyl pops on it and I'd take these weird compressors and just make it sound like it's tape getting stretched in and out and 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 because I was so into the Beatles as a kid or Prince at this point I was already really into Prince I uh, I was really into the way they would manipulate by using tape and uh, and speeding it up sometimes really inspired me versus it being at its own speed or slowing it down and sometimes slowing it down would inspire me I would just work on it until something would inspire me and then I started to really realize that this was as close as I could get to interacting with another musician by myself Mm. Uh, and to me that's like what music is all about is interaction it's the conversation if you know the language you know how to speak it you know and you know how to listen and react to it and that's what we do when we talk to each other right did you imagine back then when you're so you're working on those 30 tracks did you did you have any idea that it would end up being more, you know more than just you doing your own music because it's i mean you play with other musicians live mm-hmm. as otis mcdonald like did you did you have any idea yet at that time i guess later in that same no year? no it was all an experiment yeah. and because that music was so different than the stuff i had done before i thought i didn't want to throw my fans off <laughs> like not that i had like millions of fans you know um, but I just was like, I'm going to put this out under a different name. And my wife was like, you should use the name Otis McDonald because it's catchy and it's kind of funny and it's reminiscent of like old McDonald. Thanks, Justine. Yeah, thanks, Justine. And uh, and so that's what I decided to put it out under. And in, in doing that, I knew that this would be an experiment. Like, can I create an artist on this particular platform like out of thin air? Like Otis McDonald has never existed. However, now I've realized that there is a person named Otis McDonald. He's no longer alive, but he was like this big uh, Second Amendment uh, Second Amendment activist in <laughs> yeah <laughs> in Chicago and um, yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, rest in peace, Otis. Um, sure. But, but I have no nothing to do with you. I came up with that name from these artists. Yeah. Uh, and so I uh, yeah I I just wanted to see what would happen, and then very quickly. The, when those tracks started coming out, they started getting used a lot, and I and I saw that, and I was like, okay, I need to do something about this. Like, and so I made an Otis McDonald channel on YouTube, and my wife and I designed a logo together, and I started uh, I started talking to this woman um, that a vocal teacher of mine had introduced me to um, this young woman Ruby, who um, was is like hyper intelligent and just like super with it young lady who it was like 10 years younger than me but just like understood branding and understood how to teach somebody how to do that her whole thing was like i'm not going to manage you and i'm not going to i'm not going to do it for you but i'm going to show you how to do it and uh it was great she sent me like this 50 question questionnaire and that i had to answer about myself which is something i'd never done and uh and i learned how to like brand myself and so i built this channel i I built this logo i put on 
my sunglasses and got this yes, coat and started taking pictures of myself like like almost like a superhero costume mm-hmm. and i was like i'm gonna go with otis mcdonald like this is gonna be my new thing and then eventually i put together a band full of multi-instrumentalists so i could move around the stage playing different instruments and as a an audience member anytime i saw bands that do that like i saw Paul Simon's band in 2007, they would all switch instruments. I was just like, this is the coolest fucking show I've ever seen, you know? Yep. So I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I quickly got all these guys together. These were my favorite musicians in the Bay. And we got together at Adam Thies' house in his studio and set up these GoPro cameras. And then my wife uh, borrowed a camera from her friend. And, uh, and I taught them a song called I Can't Stand, which I had just written. And uh, we did like three takes of it, and I think the third take is the one that we made a video. And and then when my cousin John was visiting, uh, not long after I had made that video, but I hadn't put the video out, uh, my my cousin John, who's an artist from Detroit, he was visiting, and I was telling him about what I'd been doing and how I'd been approaching making tracks by like, you know, mixing old with new technology he was like man that's like essentially what i've been doing with my visual art like taking the approach of like collage art but bringing it into the digital domain and manipulating it that way and and he started showing me his work and i was like man this shit is so cool and i was like maybe we could do stuff together he was like you can use any one of these pieces of art you want and so i started using his artwork that he had already made and pairing it with my tracks because i started taking notice of other bands that when you went to the YouTube channel, like a lot of their thumbnails all looked a certain way Mm -hmm. um, associated with that particular band. Like the band Wolfpack was like a great um, influence to me. Like they, the way all their videos had this weird kind of like light sky blue color and this image in the center that was kind of like messed up. So it looked like there was like three images of the same thing. And but all their thumbnails looked like that, and I was like, okay. And they had a logo, and they had um, a little um, Sonic brand, like uh, you know, in bef- before all of their videos. And I was like, so I came up with my own, you know, yes. and I was like, I'm gonna fucking go for this. And uh, and I started putting out all these what I call art tracks with my cousin's art and the music that was from the library. And then I started putting out live videos from the studio, well, with just this one video with the band, and. At that point, like, I already, my subscriptions were going up because people were coming to hear those full tracks after seeing them in other viral videos. I was going to ask, uh, uh, how were they being used? Or, like, in in what mediums, what capacity? In anything. It could be a makeup tutorial. Mm -hmm. It could be a fucking cat video, you know. uh, But there was these two particular uh, YouTubers that were using my stuff a lot, and they were very big, uh, and still are very big. One is called iDubs. Uh, and the other guy, um, this guy Ethan, his channel is called H3H3. Um, they're both kind of comedy YouTube channels, but definitely more appealing to like teenagers. It's it's not super for me, like, yeah. but I really appreciate them using my music, and I've had a nice rapport with them since, just uh, via like you know messaging on Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that. And, any and other they're, and they're super thankful and appreciative of my music and being able to use it for free which is great any other podcasts besides this one that you know of um well h3h3 has their own podcast okay. um there's a ton of podcasts actually i don't know 
the name of them right because i get emails all the time and they're like hey can i use your music and i'm like sure just give me the credit mm-hmm. you know i can't say no you know, like <laughs> i knew that like if 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 i made music and i didn't hold back the quality and made it as as good as possible that there would be some people that would use it in their videos and there would be at least a percentage of those viewers of those videos would want to find out where that music is coming from. And so if I played my cards right, it would all work and it worked and, and it just became more and more popular and, and it's been completely grassroots. (laughs) I say that with quotations in this new digital age, but I haven't put any money behind like PR or anything like that for Otis McDonald. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to see if I could do this, like Mm -hmm. if, if this could become a thing. Mm -hmm. And when I started putting out the videos showing of me playing music with other musicians, then people were like, holy shit, this guy like actually plays music. Like, yeah, like I made all that music, but you know, (laughs) it's, I, I started to realize like a lot of teenagers and the people that were watching these videos that were getting hit to my music are, you know, these kids have grown up watching music where it's like predominantly like, pressing buttons right which is cool too you know i mean there's there's in, some incredible button pushers out there you know the, or guys that use npcs and play drums that way you mm-hmm. know um but that's just not what i grew up doing mm-hmm. and so all the otis mcdonald music like it's all me playing everything it's uh and it's not it's not just like a bunch of drum loops and yeah and it's like i'm playing synthesizers and i am using drum machines but i'm playing it and i'm not quantizing it because Jay Dilla didn't quantize it, and that shit feels like a human to me, and right. I wanted to feel human. And uh, but I still wanted to write songs and not just make beats. And so I felt that since this stuff was becoming popular, the beats, um, that maybe I could slowly start introducing people, uh, these Otis McDonald fans, to the songs that I was writing as Joe Bagale. And what a and great just put them all together way to know. do that. Yeah. I've got a um, I've got a new record coming out, um, either the end of the summer or the beginning of September, the beginning of the fall, um, or is I guess that's summertime for out here. That is like the beginning of our summer. It is. Yeah. Uh, so at the beginning of a Bay Area summer, um, <laughs> that's your title right there. <laughs> there will be uh, there will be a brand new Otis McDonald album, and in some ways, kind of like the debut album of Otis McDonald, and. Uh, and the title of the album is People Music. And the reason it's called People Music is because the people were the ones that have made me popular. And at the beginning of this year, for the first 15 weeks of this year, I put out a new snippet of a brand new track every week for 15 weeks uh, with the intent that the people will choose what is the most popular song and um, or what are the 10 most popular songs. And so I did that with my 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 business partners, my team, and we we uh, took all the 15 tracks and went through all the analytics. Um, we did a bunch of stuff. It was like likes versus dislikes of all time, likes of all time, like views per week, and um, and narrowed it down to the 10 tracks that fit into those categories. And then I finished those songs and sequenced it as an, a 10 track album. And then I brought it down a few weeks ago. I brought it down to Los Angeles and I had it mastered by the great Bernie Grunman. And Bernie Grunman has mastered like half of my record collection. 
So like albums like Thriller and Purple Rain and Asia and like so much stuff. Uh, and it's going to come out on vinyl and it's also going to be on streaming services and it's also going to coincide with me launching my company called Track Tribe and uh, which is like my label and the album will be available to download for free and use in your videos royalty free and all I'm asking for is actually a charitable donation and the charity we're playing around with a few different charities but I think the one we're going to work with is Why Hunger and we're going to try to raise a million dollars and instead of bringing money back to me we're going to bring the money to the people so it's people music <laughs> that was Joe Bigale aka Otis McDonald join us next week for another musical podcast this time with hip hop blogger Joy Ng music for the podcast and we hope it's obvious by now is by Otis McDonald film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn about some of the stuff we do besides the podcast. Find all 80 episodes on our website, storiedsf.com, which, again, is where you can go to pledge your support for what we do. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.